one in five adolescents, one in eight young adults, and one in 17 adults report having engaged in non-suicidal self-injury, or NSSI for short. But how do these numbers vary across countries throughout the world? Are there countries with higher or lower rates of self-injury? After all, we have listeners tuning in from across the globe. So shout-outs to our listeners in Chile, Argentina, Ghana, Dubai, Kazakhstan, Scandinavia, Croatia, France, and all of Europe, India, Russia, China, Singapore, and all of Asia, Australia, New Zealand, and North America, among so many others I wish I had time to list. Are there specific races or ethnicities with higher or lower rates of self-injury? How prevalent is NSSI among indigenous people? And what role does culture play in the form, function, and meaning of the self-injury? To answer these questions and to also talk about NSSI and tattooing, I am joined today all the way from New Zealand by Dr. Mark Wilson. Welcome to the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast, a resource for parents, professionals, and people with lived experience. I'm your host, Dr. Nicholas Westers, clinical psychologist at Children's Health, associate professor at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, and chair of the Media and Communications Committee of the International Society for the Study of Self-Injury, or ISSS, or simply IISS. Professor Mark Wilson is intellectually indigenous to Te Arenga Waka Victoria University of Wellington in Aotearoa, New Zealand, having started there as a small child and never leaving. He has two main strands of research, one that focuses on political, social, and science attitudes and behaviors like voting, dietary behavior, attitudes to climate change, and one focusing on adolescent mental health, and specifically around non-suicidal and suicidal ideation and behavior among young people. The second strand of research has been supported by grants from the Health Research Council and Marsden Fund. He has local and national awards for his teaching, as well as his science communication and outreach. He has written a psychology column for the New Zealand Listener for the past 10 years. Welcome, Dr. Wilson. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today. It's great to be here. Hopefully I pronounced the terms correctly of the Te Arengawaka Victoria University of Wellington in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And just before we pressed record for our podcast episode, you were telling me the cultural implications of this name tied to the university. And I think this would be a great way to start our interview before I ask about anything related to non-suicidal self-injury. Can you share with us the meaning and the cultural context? Yeah, thanks. And you did a great job there, by the way. Thank it's, you. It's not easy. <laughs> so Aotearoa, New Zealand, is a, legally a bicultural country, and governance is theoretically split between Māori, who are the indigenous people of New Zealand, and the descendants of the people who colonised the country. Aotearoa itself is Māori for land of the long white cloud, which uh, if you ever visit <laughs> New Zealand, will start to look pretty familiar. But the name of the university represents that bicultural status. And so obviously Victoria University harks back to Queen Victoria, who was the queen at the time of the establishment of this place. Wellington is the name of the city, but Te Waka is Māori for the hitching post. So it's the post that you tie your canoe to so it doesn't float away. And so it symbolises for us that relationship, students coming to us, effectively hitching their waka, their canoe, to this place. And I love that symbolism. The Māori were the early colonists of this land, and they came here from other parts of the Pacific, originally from Hawaiki. Um, so the Māori has a lot in common with the Hawaiian native language as well. But of course, they travelled here in a number of waka or canoes. And so uh, many people trace their lineage, their whakapapa, back to those particular canoes. So again, we see that symbolism coming through. And this is relevant to our conversation today because we're going to talk about the global prevalence and cultural relevance of non-suicidal self-injury that affects everyone throughout the world. Mm -hmm. And so we will come back to that. But before we do, I wanted to ask you, like I ask everyone else, how did you become interested in the mm -hmm. first place in researching non-suicidal self-injury? Yeah, I love that question. It gives me a chance to talk about myself. <laughs> so actually, in this particular case, it comes back to something that my wife said. My wife is a clinical psychologist who for a long time has worked in child and adolescent mental health services around uh, Wellington and has, uh, during that time, become a, a hard case specialist. So you only got to see her if you were a really unhappy adolescent. And one day she came home from work and said, 
you know, it's bizarre. All of the young people I see seem to hurt themselves. And I thought to myself, look, that's bizarre. I don't understand that at all. I mean, I remember going to school and I never saw that happening. I mean, sure, you know, Harry sat in the back of the class sticking drawing pins in his, oh, yeah, okay. So it was something which I realised had always been around, but I hadn't recognised it necessarily for what it was. And because I'm in the incredibly privileged position to get paid to ask and answer the questions that interest me, I went away, I found a set of questions to measure self-harm, Sansone and Sansone's self-harm inventory, and I got a whole bunch of first-year psychology students and well-adjusted young people <laughs> to fill in that measure and was really surprised by what came out the other end, that a, a measure which had been designed for use with people diagnosed with borderline personalities was you know, suggesting that something like 25 to 30% of my first-year class apparently had borderline personalities. And that was the first hint to me that something is going on. Self-injury is obviously prevalent among those with borderline personality disorder, but people who mm. self-injure doesn't mean they have borderline personality disorder. It's not as prevalent. Yeah, I mean, this is back in a time, and this is almost 15 years ago, this is before conversations about disentangling the relationship between self-injury and borderline personality diagnosis in the DSM. And in fact, many of the people made contributions to that as part of the International Society for the Study of Self-Injury, played instrumental roles in that. I know a 2018 meta-analysis on the global lifetime prevalence of self-injury, at least among adolescents in the community, showed that 22.9% of adolescents across the globe have reported self-injury at least once in their life, so basically one in five. And 18.6% of adolescents in the community reported having self-injured within the past year. I have two questions related to this. I'll just start with the first one. First, what is the global lifetime prevalence of self-injury among adults? Mm, that's a really important question, and I'm not sure it's one that we've done a good job of answering. The whole area of research in non-suicidal self-injury is still relatively new. And as a result, I think that we haven't done a good job of identifying or looking at self-injury in specific populations. And ironically, adult populations are one of those. So there's only a handful of studies that have actually tried to do large-scale population community-level surveys of adults to identify this. And bizarrely enough, at least to me, the prevalence rates that we see are between 2 and about 6% in adult populations. Now, that's clearly a lot lower than the prevalence rates that you alluded to in the question, which suggests at least a couple of possibilities to me. One is that something has happened in the recent past that means that young people are hurting themselves more than the people who are now adults did when they were adolescents. Or alternatively, that something happens in the way that people think about the behaviour that they engage in. And like most questions in psychology, it's probably going to be a combination of those two. But I think it's a striking disjunction. That means that adult populations are reporting about a four times lower rate of engagement with self-injury than adolescent populations do. And because we have attended primarily to adolescent populations, quite reasonably, they're the place where many psychiatric diagnoses or examples of mental distress have their root. It makes perfect sense to focus there. But that also means that we're not doing a good job at understanding, for example, self-injury amongst older people. There is, at least in suicide statistics, an indication of an uptick as people approach the later years of their lives. And there's research at the moment coming out by people like Glenn Dickens, who has suggested that there's a second peak in the onset of self-injury, which historically if you look at the articles talking about prevalence, say, starts around about the age of 13 or 14, there seems to be a second peak that happens in those transition years between leaving secondary school and whatever else follows. And in an upcoming episode, we'll be covering self-injury in individuals ages 40 and over. So we'll have Dr. Sarah Swanell out of Australia talk about that. So I'm really excited. Mm. Like you're saying we just don't talk about self-injury among adults as much. And of course, studies suggest that it's more prevalent among mm. adolescents. And so we focus a lot of that on adolescents and young adulthood. Yeah. My second question is, are there general differences in prevalence rates among different countries throughout the world? That is, are there countries with higher rates of self-injury than others, whether among adults or adolescents? So if we're looking at the prevalence of NSSI amongst adult populations, the range is really small. So we're talking about between 2 and 6%. I mean, one of the, the studies that gets cited most commonly here in that conversation, Breer and Gill, back in 1998, reported about 4% prevalence. We don't know enough to actually, I don't think we've got the statistical power actually to answer the question about whether or not there are statistical differences. Certainly the meta-analyses of adolescent and young adult 
in SSI suggests that the prevalence rates vary between about 15 to 20 percent if you look across the various reviews of them. In terms of where in the world we might see differences, I've been really interested in reviewing the research around cross-cultural or cultural self-injury that we've got a small number of families of research. So we've got a small number of studies that compare self-injury across two or more nations using the same measures. And this is really important because one of the problems we have in this area of research is that we have a lot of different ways of operationalizing and asking about self-injury. So studies which involve collaboration across nations using the same measures are really important to allow us to compare apples with apples. So those studies typically show very similar rates of self-injury across nations. So if we can compare Germany with the US, we see roughly you know, 18, 19, 20%. If we compare people in India with people in Belgium, we find very similar kinds of rates, 18 to 20%. But where we do find potential differences is in the way that people engage in self-injury and potentially in the functions that serve the functions for their self-injury. And I think that that's potentially where this area of research has to go next. I think another important area of research is where we look at cultural groups within countries. So it makes perfect sense in the context of Aotearoa New Zealand, for example, to try and find out the prevalence amongst Māori, amongst Pākehā, who are the New Zealanders of European descent. But because we're also a nation that sits in the Pacific, we also have a fairly high proportion of people from different parts of Asia. And again, what the research shows when we look within nations is that, generally speaking, the same thing that we see when we review the NSSI literature as a whole comes out there. There's a lot of variation in the extent in the extent of prevalence rates. And in fact, that the variation kind of swamps any of that within group types of comparison. There are studies that suggest that maybe African-American males in the US are more likely to hurt themselves than African-American females. There's a small number of studies coming out of China published in English language journals. There are a much larger number of studies about NSSI in China that are published in Chinese language journals. And this is another challenge, I think, for us as researchers and practitioners, unless we happen to be multilingual. And reviews of the cross-cultural incidents of self-injury do suggest that, for example, uh, NSSI may be higher in non-West countries, but marginally higher, maybe 2 3 4%. It does appear to be higher in low or middle income countries than in developed countries. But when we look within nations, for example, within Western nations, which characterize the majority of research on NSSI, something like 85% of all the studies that have ever been conducted on NSSI have been based either in Western or English speaking nations. And that actually is quite consistent with what we know about psychological research full stop. About 90% of psychological research in English language journals is based on Western samples, and then this means that the other 10% represent <laughs> the other 90% of the world. When we look within countries, at least in Aotearoa, we don't actually necessarily find big differences between different ethnic or cultural groups. In fact, if we look at the presentations to our mental health services, NSSI in particular seems to be a middle to upper white type of issue. Well, I wanted to go back through these comments that you made. So we started off by talking about self-injury across nations mm -hmm. and the prevalence. You mentioned India compared to Belgium, which, I mean, India and Belgium are in the top 10 countries that listen to this podcast. And then you mentioned other countries, which reflects pretty much the same prevalence rates across the globe. Mm -hmm. So NSSI, a non-suicidal self-injury across nations. And then you also mentioned non-suicidal self-injury in non-Western nations. Can you recap briefly how prevalent self-injury is among non-Western nations? So the prevalence rates of NSSI in non-Western nations, at least based on that relatively thin slice of the research, remember 15% of the studies published on NSSI, mirrors the research that's been published out of Western nations in two ways. Prevalence rates are quite variable. And we know from a lot of the meta-analyses that have been published around NSSI prevalence, that one of the most important answers to the question, how many people hurt themselves, is how did you ask the question? Mm. Um, so there's a huge amount of variation in prevalence rates that I think is attributable to the way that we actually ask people about self-injury. But the averages come out round about the same as we see in Western countries, elevated maybe by two, three, four percent. But again, that's really difficult to disentangle because of the other methodological types of differences. 
I know here in the U.S., there is the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention that every two years it does a study on adolescent high school students, grades 9 through 12, throughout the U.S. and breaks it down by state. Only a few states ask about non-suicidal self-injury, and prevalence rates are similar across all the states. But then there's one state that has really low prevalence rate, really low being about 12% compared to the other states, which is around 18, 19, 20%, which matches globally. But then if you break it down and how they ask the question, question. The question is asked differently in this state, and that state's Delaware. Delaware had about 12% of high school students reported self-injuring in the past year, and they had asked the question just generally, have you ever hurt yourself on purpose within the last year without intending suicide? Yes or no. But then the other states that have higher prevalence rates, which is consistent with other research throughout the world, is when they give specific options related to the frequency of the behavior. So a teen could endorse zero times, one time, two or three times, four or five times, or six or more times. So then the prevalence rates were actually higher. So that's very, that's an interesting point. Mm. Well, I think that certainly some of the research that I've been doing recently, looking at how asking the question affects what people say as a result, the fewer questions you ask, the lower the prevalence you tend to get. And you tend to get higher prevalence rates by asking specific, giving behavioral checklists, like the deliberate self-harm inventory. At the same time, resources like the CDC's Youth Risk Behaviour Surveillance System is really important because it captures thousands and thousands of young people and their potential behavior. And it's really important. I mean, I appreciate that the United States is really 50 odd countries all sort of inconveniently glued together, right? So it's really easy to sort of over homogenize. But I mean, NSSI rates from the CDC surveys are highest amongst Native Americans and Alaska Natives, so close to 21%, not that much higher than the overall rates, but still significantly so, compared to, say, Hispanic youth, whites, and African-Americans. And interestingly, in the CDC surveys, African-Americans come out about 12% in terms of self-injury rates. But again, that may be obscuring something because of potential differences in where the questions are assessed. I love that you can just cite that all the way from New Zealand. You're keeping up with the research here through the CDC that I was just referencing. That's excellent. Thank you. I'm, I'm really jealous that you've got that kind of resource, right? <laughs> I just wish that all states asked that question because only select states mm-hmm. have asked that. So we talked about self-injury across nations. Now, self-injury in non-Western nations. You had mentioned a large Asian population in New Zealand. Lately, probably every other week, I get requests to review manuscripts on self-injury prevalence and characteristics from authors and researchers in China specifically, but from Asia. And it's really interesting. There's a proliferation of research coming out of there. Yeah, I'm intrigued by this as well for a couple of reasons. One is because I'm interested in self-injury research, but I'm also interested in what this might signal for the kinds of social and contextual imperatives that researchers might be feeling in particular places. If I use the example of eating disorder behaviours, for example, for a long time it was the case that eating disorder behaviours were almost unheard of in many Asian nations. And there's some reason to think that the increase in prevalence of ED in those places is in part because of a kind of cultural contagion. The fact that it's been a big deal for us here in the West, things like the internet have made these sorts of things much more easily available to people outside of the countries which report high ED rates, for example. So we're seeing this thing that we worry about in SSI, contagion within sort of close communities, playing out at the national level. So I think there's some reason to think that one of the things I think about NSSI is that it's part of a large smorgasbord of things that people can do to manage their emotional experience. And this is in part the reason why I think we have higher prevalence rates of NSSI now than we did 50 years ago, if we had the data, is because it's now much more available, it's much more visible to young people by virtue of popular media and things like social media and the internet. Absolutely. I'm not sure that answered your question. Talking about eating disorders, yeah, it's relevant. We just did an episode on eating disorders and self-injury. And listeners that are familiar with the Fiji studies, uh, that's a fascinating study where introducing television to Fiji, where there was essentially no eating disorders, and then you introduced TV, and then there were eating disorders. And so people, when they look mm-hmm. at self-injury as a potential coping mechanism, they may try it, see if it works for themselves. If it doesn't, then they move on. And for those that do, they might use it effectively to regulate their emotions and then might find themselves having difficulty regulating their emotions using other healthier other ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, whatever, whatever might be adapted in that particular cultural context. And I think this is one of the things that I've learned by looking at this cross-national, cross-cultural literature is that this thing that I think of very much in terms of 
the definitions provided by researchers like Matt Nock and by the IFSS don't necessarily survive well when you take them into another context. It's like the transition from the planning room and onto the battlefield. And when I try to understand these, I think that the the well, an idea in the DSM which is quite useful, sort of cultural concepts of distress, the idea that people in different contexts may express the same potential challenges in very, very different ways becomes important. And building off some work from, I think it's Andrew Ryder, who's been promoting a kind of cross-cultural approach to clinical psychology, says that the way that people manifest their distress, you can think of as kind of a cultural script. What makes sense in that particular culture? And one of the things I'm really interested in is this, the role that something like emotion and emotional experience plays in SSI, because there's now reason to think that the way that people express their emotional distress in different cultural contexts can be quite variable. So expressing your emotions in the US is, is almost socially sanctioned. It's the way that you show when you're unhappy, but it's not the case in Japan. And in fact, in Japan, explosively expressing your emotion is seen as really pathological. And as a result, people are less likely to do it. When people in, in China are much more likely to somatize, to manifest their mental distress through their physical um, symptoms than potentially by talking about emotional symptoms, because that's what makes sense in that context. I want to come back to your comments about cultural scripts in a little bit, but before I do, I wanted to recap or revisit your comment earlier about self-injury among minority groups within nations. So much research, especially early on, focused on self-injury among whites. Like you had mentioned earlier, there was this white teenage girl problem that people think of when they think of self-injury, which is just a myth because we know that non-white self-injure, male self-injure. But I want to ask, what is the prevalence of self-injury among minority or non-white groups? And is there one race or ethnicity with higher or lower rates of self-injury? So I'll use as an example to sort of kick off answering that question, a review by Rojas Velasquez and colleagues in 2021, which looked at NSSI characteristics among African-American and Hispanic adolescents. Uh, they managed to find about 15 studies with mixed ethnicity samples, which included enough of each group to actually analyze. And this is one of the challenges in our research is that particularly when we're using convenient samples, we're going to find an overrepresentation of whoever is the dominant group. And I think there are also some real risks in drawing comparisons between the whites and convenient samples and the minority groups in those convenient samples as well, because they may not be representative mm. of those groups in, in broader society. But I mean, what Rojas Velasquez and colleagues found was that prevalence rates were highly variable. So they ranged between about 7%. And 47%. Other studies have suggested that white and Asian participants report significantly more NSSI than Hispanics and African Americans. Some studies have found no differences in self injury by ethnicity in highly diverse North American samples. But there are still studies that have shown that there are differences, and they may be complicated by intersectionality. So, for example, the intersection of culture or ethnicity and gender. You've mentioned the kind of dominant Western stereotype of NSSI is something that you know, young white women might do, primarily through cutting, for example. And that means that we're probably missing something really, really important, particularly if we only ask questions in ways that kind of lend people to self-identify with that stereotype. So if you're an older non-white male who hurts themselves in ways other than cutting, you may not see yourself in that question. So we're probably underestimating those kinds of rates. But again, there's a huge amount of variation in the within culture research, looking at different groups within nations that I think makes it really difficult to draw conclusions. But I think that what we do need to be aware of is that if we think of things like the experiential avoidance model, which really informs my understanding of NSSI by Chapman and colleagues, which starts initially with some kind of unpleasant thing happening in the environment, like being bullied, it might be losing your job, getting a grade that you don't like, for example, generating these intense negative emotional experiences that you need to manage in some way. And one of the ways that you can do that is through avoidance and potentially through self-injury. Many of the things that minorities experience fit really nicely into that, that stimulus part, the thing that kicks it all off. So experiencing racism, for example, experiencing bullying in association with race. 
In the area of mental health research with rainbow communities, for example, there's this idea of minority stress. That's to say LGBTQI plus youth experience all the stresses that other youth experience, but they also experience what goes along with not quite fitting into the, the societal norm box. And I would be really surprised if we don't see some of this stuff playing out also with minority groups who experience all the stresses that, that people in any culture experience, plus the things that go along with being a minority group and being discriminated against and experiencing prejudice. Whether or not they manifest it in NSSI is where this idea of cultural scripts potentially comes in again. So do non-white, non-Western groups manage or avoid their negative emotional experience with self-injury, that's going to depend on some of those contextual and cultural norms. Is there a relationship between racism and self-injury? Yeah, I think this is a great question. Particularly, I spent the first half of my career (laughs) studying racism. And my inclination would be to say, yeah, surely there would be. But in fact, the very small number of studies that have looked at this don't seem to find a particularly consistent relationship. And again, I wonder if that's because there are a whole bunch of other things that I don't think racism is a one-on-one cause of NSSI, but it's certainly one of the things that potentially contributes to that negative emotional environment. What about acculturation or level of acculturation? Is there a relationship Mm. between acculturation and self-injury? Yeah, so NSSI amongst minority youth appears to reflect at least partly acculturation. So that's fitting into a different cultural milieu from the one that either you were born into or alternatively (laughs) the one that your parents were born into. Uh, Immigration stress itself, so the stress that goes along with moving between contexts. The peer victimization that goes along with bullying, that goes along with looking different from other people in the playground. Certainly in Uh, North American samples of Hispanic youth, familial drug use and the other challenges that go along with watching your family struggle potentially to acculturate, usually in contexts where in many parts of the Western world, minority groups tend to be be power and status minorities as well and have less economic resources, which again add to the stress that we have to deal with in the course of our lives. At the same time, I think that we can balance that off against protective factors that come from being part of a potentially relatively small community within a community. Um, so social social support and connection to others that are part of that community. Um, they've been shown to be protective for African-American and Hispanic youth. Cultural identity, church attendance for African-Americans. In Aotearoa, there is a very important perspective on Māori mental health that is sometimes called the culture as cure model. The idea that historically Māori people have become dispossessed of their whenua, their land, but also their identity through the processes of colonisation. One thing that's been really important in this is language. Colonisers learnt very quickly on that if you want to <laughs> if you want to destroy a culture, then you prevent people from speaking their indigenous language. As a result, the argument is made that many Māori in Aotearoa don't feel the connection to their indigeneity in the way that they used to and potentially the way that they should. And as as a result, not only are behaviours like NSSI, we have extremely high suicide rates amongst Māori, particularly young Māori men, that reflect historical trauma. And that one potential way to remediate this is to try to bolster people's connection to their whakapapa, their genealogy, and also the cultural and ritual practices that go along with being part of that group. So in New Zealand and lots of other parts of the world that acknowledge this as a challenge, we're seeing a lot of enrichment effort going into revitalising language. In Aotearoa, about 15% of the population are Māori, and a very recent survey suggests that the rates of familiarity with te reo Māori, the language, um, are the highest they've been since for 100 years. And as a result, the culture and cure, as cure model would suggest that we should start to see better health, social, economic outcomes for Māori as a result of this reconnection with their cultural identity. This is so relevant. Just this morning or this afternoon, I actually did a, an interview with one of our local newspapers, the Dallas Morning News, on language brokering among children, where we have immigrant youth or children of immigrants. Uh, here they are either translating written material for their parents in medical settings or bank statements, their family's financial numbers, basically, and then interpreting, so serving as interpreters, this language brokering. And sometimes language brokering among young people, they become 
become discriminated against. They're on the receiving end of racism, and that lowers their self-efficacy in being able to interpret for their parents mm. and then also results in depression and anxiety. And it's so interesting that your comment about colonization and how you how you destroy a people, you destroy their ability to, to speak their own language. And mm. yeah, that's so fascinating and so sad too. Yeah. But building this identity, this racial identity and being proud of who they are mm. can protect a lot of these negative effects. Yeah, and I think that makes perfect sense based on what we know about psychology. So Aotearoa is importantly different from a number of other Western colonies because we have a thing called the Treaty of Waitangi, Titiriti or Waitangi, which was a treaty signed between the British Crown and the chiefs of the major tribes or iwi in New Zealand. The British worked out reasonably quickly that it was going to be really hard to actually beat the Māori on the battlefield. So they signed a treaty instead, which sets out several principles for the relationship between the Crown and Māori. And that is, we don't have a constitution, but it's as close as a constitutional document as we have. So a lot of legislation alludes to those principles. And as a result, there is a legal redress for Māori who feel that that relationship has been transgressed. If we look at Australia, for example, there aren't any obvious equivalents of Titanity. And that means we see that play out in the fact that many Aboriginal Australians, they live outside of major centres. So they are localised in, in relatively small groups in faraway places. They represent something like 2 to 3% of the population as opposed to Māori, 15% and increasing. And we see something very similar in North America, both in the United States and also in Canada, where Native Americans and First Nations people, again, represent a much smaller proportion of the community. And again, to some extent, they've been ghettoized onto reservations. And I think that's a really tough position in part because of what research about acculturation says. So there's some, I'm fortunate enough to work in a department where we have a number of experts on cross-cultural psychology. A number of them do research on acculturation using a model that basically very simply says, when you enter into a new context, you have the challenge of not just acculturating to that context, but also maintaining your own identity and ritual and practice and language. And what we do know is that people who fail to acculturate, but also lose their own identity, are the people who end up with the highest levels of depression, anxiety, uh, suicidal ideation and behaviour and outcomes. So this is a non-trivial issue and one that I think that Western, Western democracies with histories of colonisation have to get to grips with if we're going to authentically deal with the raft of negative outcomes that Indigenous peoples tend to, to manifest. This leads right into my next question, because we've talked about self-injury across nations, self-injury in non-Western nations, and self-injury among minority groups within nations. I want to continue our conversation on talking about self-injury in indigenous peoples. Mm. Prior to the pandemic, I often traveled to the country of Panama. I love Panama. I love the people there. I'm close friends with a lot of Kuna Indians, and the Kuna Indians are one of the largest indigenous peoples in Panama. A lot of Kuna have moved to the city now, and they speak both Kuna and Spanish. But one of my most recent visits was to the indigenous islands, where many Kuna only speak Kuna. I speak Spanish, so I remember having a conversation in the home of one family where a Kuna friend was translating my Spanish into Kuna so that we could converse, and the family was telling me about one of their adolescent family members who had been engaging in self-cutting as a form of non-suicidal self-injury. So here we are in a hut in a small village on a tiny island in the Atlantic Ocean talking about how self-injury traverses nation, race, and culture. I know you've done a lot of work with indigenous groups in New Zealand, specifically the Maori. How prevalent is self-injury among indigenous peoples? And what role does culture play in the form, function, and even meaning of the self-injury? Mm. Yeah, I love that anecdote. It reminds me of seeing you know, self-injury expert Barry Walsh talking about a very similar type of interaction, but on an Indian reservation. And not only that sort of bizarre experience that you report of <laughs> being outside of your professional life in this very different context, but talking about self-injury, but also the challenges to his own assumptions that went along with that. I think this is one of the most challenging issues I see for researchers and practitioners, because we have this very nice definition of non-suicidal self-injury as something that involves deliberate tissue damage without suicidal intent and not for reasons that are socially sanctioned. But qualitative research with Indigenous people 
our own here in Aotearoa, but also research with Native Americans in North America, for example, suggests that if we actually sit down and talk to people, particularly young people, about self-injury, they tend to use a broader definition of what constitutes self-injury than we do in our definitions. So one thing that Māori, Aboriginal Australians and uh, Native Americans have talked about in these, in these research studies is the role of substances, for example. So drug use and alcohol use seen as pretty much synonymous with our definition of non-suicidal self-injury. Amongst Pacific peoples, there's a small amount of research that suggests that things like damage to your spirituality are also really, really important. And I think, I mean, you're a clinician and I suspect that there's no way you would say spirituality isn't something that enters into the clinical practice space. But our models of understanding mental distress from a Western standpoint tend to focus much more on the psychological than they do on these, these rather more ephemeral or metaphysical types of elements. So in that very first study that I briefly alluded to, I use Sansone's self-harm inventory. And one of the questions that basically it says, have you ever done any of the following? There's a long list of things, which includes cutting, it includes scratching, but it also includes this really interesting question, which is distancing yourself from God. And in my sample of first year university students, very few people endorsed that, but every single one of them that did were Pacific Island nations youth for whom faith was integral to their identity. So I think this is one of the challenges that I see for research because we don't tend to include those things in our definitions. In fact, we explicitly relegate some of these things either to that category of self-harm, partly because of the difficulty in disentangling intent that comes along with ingestion of things like substances. In fact, we know this. I think we know this in our experience that this is a particular challenge. But if the people that we're working with think about it subtly differently, then we run a real risk of missing out <laughs> potentially really important information. So just coming back to this idea of spirituality, if you look at the ways that indigenous people, at least the indigenous people that I'm, I've studied, think about well-being, they tend to be a little bit more holistic than traditional Western European approach. So Native American people have a medicine wheel, which has a number of different aspects of well-being positioned around its outside. And the argument there is that if these things get out of balance, then that's when people get ill or distressed. In our Māori, the Māori world, one of the dominant ways of thinking about well-being is to symbolise well-being as a house or a whare. And in order to have a strong house, you have to have strong walls. So the whare, the house, has to have a strong wall that relates to your social well-being, your physical well-being, your psychological well-being, and your spiritual well-being. And so I think that one of the implications potentially for people who are working in a clinical context is to potentially appreciate the importance of these things in ways that maybe we wouldn't necessarily think about them in the context of our, necessarily the way that we move through the day or that most of our clients would. Yeah, this is all very fascinating. I'm thinking about distancing oneself from God that you found with Pacific Islander youth and how that was a form for them of self-harm. My dissertation research, I looked at forgiveness in adolescents who self-injure. And for the record, it turns out they're pretty good at forgiving other people, but the self-forgiveness was <laughs> was very difficult for them if they had a history of self-injury, especially if they self-injured more frequently. But then I looked at religious mm. coping, positive and negative religious coping. Positive religious coping is seeking solace or support in one's faith or faith community or God. And then the negative religious coping being feeling abandoned by God or faith community. And so that fell under the category of religious coping in a negative way, which kind of parallels this distancing oneself from God as a form of self-harm. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm really interested in that for several reasons. One is that I mean, my understanding of the psychology of religion literature is that generally speaking, people who are members of a religious congregation tend to live longer and be happier. And if we try to disentangle the reasons for that, part of it's that being part of a congregation means that you've got a social network that you feel part of, that you share values with, and who can actually come and help when bad things happen. And while there's only a very small amount of research on the relationship between religion, religiosity, and NSSI, what there is seems to suggest that actually it's a positive thing. It's a buffer. It's a support that people can turn to in times of challenge. It's maybe a little bit more nuanced than that. So the point that you've kind of alluded to is that people who hold their faith in different ways may, may use it in different ways. So, for example, youth who come from more conservative religious faiths 
seem to show a few more negative outcomes than people who come from more liberal religious faiths. And when we look at intersectionality, one of the few studies that ever, has ever done this, looking at the Sami indigenous people in Scandinavia, shows that NSSI rates were approximately the same amongst Sami youth and as non-Sami youth. But Sami youth who were part of the sort of dominant faith for the Sami people showed the lowest rates of NSSI of, of all. And this, I don't think, is entirely surprising. We know that one of the single biggest predictors or most consistent predictors of NSSI is not having a, a social network or having a limited social network, not having confidence. And I think the thing that goes along with withholding a religion, particularly if it comes with a congregation, is that you have those things. These are fascinating studies. <laughs> I'm, I'm so oh, glad no, you're so we well can versed. Talk about this all day. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, I mean, this is perfect. This is exactly what I wanted us to talk about in this episode, and because yeah. we just don't talk about it much mm. in the research. And I think that your work in this area is so relevant because one of my questions was related to like the form, function, and meaning of self-injury. And here you mm. are sharing the different cultural narratives that are at play when it comes to self-injury. Mm. Yeah, I was, I'm glad you mentioned that because I was going to come back to that that issue of sort of form of self-injury, because I'm thinking of sort of Amanda Favatz's idea of sort of cultural psychiatry. And in his chapters and work where he's intersected with NSSI, he's talked about culture as being the matrix in which all behavior occurs, and specifically in the context of what we're talking about today, NSSI. And one of the points that he makes is that self-injury related rituals have been with us throughout time. And where we see them, they've historically tended to serve a function of remediation or trying to reduce threat. So if there's a moral challenge to either individuals or communities, one of the ways to remediate it is through self-harm, self-injury. If there is a, a physical threat, so if there's a threat to our harvest, for example. And he goes on to make the point that historically, most cultures have coming-of-age rituals. And in some cultures and in more distant times, a lot of those rituals involve damage to the body. And I think the point that he then goes on to make is really relevant here. We tend to stigmatize or assume that self-injury is a really problematic, non-normative behavior. But here in New Zealand, when I use the DSHI, I find that it's not uncommon to find 50 to 60% of my samples say they've hurt themselves at least once. And Favatsa says, if you look at the popularity of self-injury related media on social media sites, the kind of conversations that young people have in the playground, we're actually stigmatizing this as non-normative actually is really, really risky because it ignores an important part of a puzzle. But he also says that he goes on to speculate that if one of the challenges of being an adolescent is to work out who you are and you don't feel like you're succeeding in doing that, then engaging in self-injury is not that dissimilar from these kind of historical examples of coming-of-age type rituals that you know he's seen throughout his travels through history and across cultures. The research that has been done comparing explicitly across populations, so for example, while rates of cutting, uh, rates of self-injury may be similar between the US and Germany, Paul Plenner's work, cutting tends to be more common in the US. On the other hand, whilst NSSI rates seem to be reasonably similar across India and Belgium, headbanging, particularly amongst Indian males, is much more common than amongst Belgians, and cutting and scratching is much lower. If we think about some of the things that people who've talked about cultural self-injury have suggested, so for example, in amongst Aboriginal Australians, it's a not normative, it's a tolerated a way to show your grief is by inflicting what they call sorry cuts on yourself. In Aotearoa, traditionally, Māori people may have engaged in a form of self-injury called heihei to manifest their extreme grief. And so these aren't necessarily things that we would see amongst you know, the Pākehā population in New Zealand. They're these particularly cultural ways of manifesting our extreme emotional experience that again illustrates this point about cultural scripts. What makes sense in your cultural context as a way to manifest your emotion and your distress. Earlier, you had mentioned the DSHI, that's the deliberate self-harm inventory for those listening that didn't catch that. But specifically talking about these coming of age, cultural scripts, I'm not sure if you were at the IS conference that we had, I think it was in 2016 in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. 
Yep. Where we broke out into working groups to discuss this question that mm. still comes up. It still comes up in my work is tattooing, whether it's mm. self-tattooing or just tattoos in general as forms of self-injury. And I, I know there's consensus in our group, but I wanted to bring that up mm. and ask your thoughts in the context of our conversation about culture and, and where that lies. Mm. I've actually got a master's student at the moment who's looking at people's experiences of tattooing, particularly in the context of mental health. So I, I'm, intrigued, I'm intrigued by this. I have a small number of tattoos, but when I compare myself to my own students, and I've surveyed my first year students, I'm seriously under tattooed compared to them. So it's not quite normative, but it's pretty close. Just as colonizers took control by wiping out language, in many Pacific cultures, traditional forms of tattooing have been very important for several reasons. They're important for establishing your genealogy. So many Pacific tattooing forms actually tell a story of where you came from. So it's literally wearing your genealogy on your body. There's also this coming of age ritual aspect because tattooing does involve discomfort and potentially pain. But in Hawaii, for example, there's only been a relatively recent resurgence in traditional tattooing. Maori have historically hung on to this. And so tattoos tamoko are particularly important as expressions of who you are and where you come from, as well as status. Māori women may wear a tattoo on their chins that uh, serves this function. Māori men may engage in extensive tattooing. And because these have such strong cultural meaning, there are examples in our research of where they've butted up against sort of more contemporary takes on tattooing. So for example, I suspect you have this in the US, it's sort of cultural or tri tribal tattoos that people might get. They often look really, really nice, but actually in many cases, they're absent of that cultural value. Mm. And certainly in some of the work of my colleague, Talia Kingy, this can prove problematic. So she tells a case study of a, a young Māori person who it's imagined they have a fight with their parents they go out and they go down to the tattoo parlor and they get a tattoo that doesn't have cultural meaning. And that kind of example would be interpreted as damage to your spirit, to your connection back to your ancestors, that traditional Māori tattoos are really important for embodying. And then that has to be remediated. If you get a prison tattoo you can, and you don't want it anymore, you can go and get it removed. But for Māori, the process might involved, the remediation process might be involved reconnecting with your river and your whenua, your land. Um, and the story that Talia tells of a, of a young person going back to their ancestral homeland and immersing themselves in those things from which they came as part of that remediation process. That is just so fascinating. Again, it brings, well, it brings it back to, yeah, the spiritual aspect too, that, mm -hmm. that can harm oneself spiritually. And, I, and I'm thinking about the Kuna Indians and other indigenous groups in Panama, where it's not necessarily tattooing, tattooing as much as marking oneself with a dye mm -hmm. that comes from a fruit. There's this fruit in Panama in the jungle, in the Darien jungle, where you crush the seeds and, and it goes on clear. You can't see it. This is just me. If I were to put it on, I'm sure yeah. the Kunas and others are able to mix it with some other dye so that they can actually see it. Mm -hmm. Then they draw it on themselves, on their face or all over their body. So it looks like a tattoo, but it's just temporary. The dye will last. Mm -hmm for days or, or weeks. It kind of depends on how much it's washed and how concentrated the dye is. Mm -hmm. I do know that some individuals will get tattoos, at least here in the U.S., in order to experience the pain caused by them. Mm -hmm. But because it's culturally sanctioned, we wouldn't necessarily call it non-suicidal self-injury, even if they got it in order mm -hmm. to feel the self-injurious pain. Yeah, we've come across examples of these types of accounts in our own qualitative work where people will describe getting well, there's, there's two aspects, elements to this. One is getting uh, a tattoo to serve the same function as we think typically um, NSSI represents. Sometimes repeated tattooing of the same area. Uh, we've also seen it with repeated piercing. So people will go and get a piercing, remove it when they get home, wait until it heals over and then go get it again. And I think what this really stresses is one of the most important things for me. I'm not a practitioner, so I shouldn't give anyone advice on how to live their lives. But in when I've talked to people with lived experience of self-injury, one of the things that they routinely say was the most helpful was discussion of the functions, the characterization of the behavior rather than the person. They find this tremendously empowering to have it presented in the way that they understand. And what this reinforces is that I think lots of different things can be self-injury provided that they serve the function. And that's why a functional analysis 
but behavior is such an important and powerful tool. We talk about that functional analysis quite a bit in the treatment for self-injurious behaviors with Dr. Peggy Andover, so the TSIB. That's actually one of our top episodes. People are really interested in the mm-hmm. treatment. Is there anything else that we haven't discussed or addressed that you believe is really important for us in the context of self-injury within and across culture? Well, just coming back to that discussion about tattooing, I imagine that you probably see this you know, either in your work or your research in your broader context, that sometimes people choose to cover their self-injury with tattoos. And I think this is a really powerful thing to do as well as a a really intriguing process of thinking that's involved. Because I also know people who decide deliberately not to cover over the scars that represent their their self-injury because it's an important reminder of something. So I think that this overlaying of one, one type of body modification with another is really fascinating and speaks to something really important about the way that we embody our psychology. We embody the things that are going on inside of our heads. So while people in China are more likely to present with physical symptoms than potentially emotional ones, we still in in, in our Western culture have some of these kinds of embodiments as well, even though we might not even articulate them in those kinds of ways. Yeah, that's a whole topic itself that I would like to have on this podcast is the psychology of scarring among non-suicidal mm-hmm. self-injury. Because like you said, for some people, they're very important. Others, they don't want them. Some want to cover them as part of a form of recovery mm-hmm. so that they don't damage. They cover them with tattooing so that they don't damage their tattoos. Yeah. And I've seen success in both ways, whether mm-hmm. owning those scars and the meaning as well as tattooing over them and finding new meaning. And I think it mm-hmm. depends on the individual. But I do see that too, yeah. Yeah, because I'm interested in these things. I'd listen to that podcast, by the way. (laughs) I mean, there is a small academic literature on the psychological correlates and meanings of tattooing. And that ranges all the way from sort of neo-Freudian stuff about manifesting our unconscious all the way through to sort of, you know, the relationship between big five and, and tattoos. I'm really interested in how that research itself manifests in different cultural contexts. So some studies which have been conducted in sort of the Midwest of the U.S., talk about tattoos and piercings in the research as cultural deviance markets, which seems to be a little bit judgy to me, right? <laughs> and, and researchers setting out to see whether or not is it the case that people who have tattoos are actually higher on neuroticism. Actually, no, in fact, that doesn't seem to be the case. What we do know from a growing body of literature is that actually openness seems to be a predictor of things like that. And I think that's entirely consistent with this idea about exploring who you are that often comes up in narratives around things like tattooing or piercing. But I'll listen to that podcast. <laughs> Great. Yeah, you mentioned the Midwest. That's actually where I'm from. So <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, was I wasn't saying anything specific. <laughs> Oh, we could just keep talking about this. This is so good. But I think it would be also still really important for us to wrap it up in asking the questions I ask at the end of every episode. Based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to parents? Mm. So again, I'm not a clinician, so I'm very careful about what kind of advice I give. But this is something that comes up routinely. Yeah. Right? So I think that any form of self-injury is important to take seriously. People who listen to this podcast know that it's not uncommon for adults to characterize self-injury as attention seeking. And sure, that may be an element of the function of some people's self-injury. We know that a lot of self-injury spontaneously ends, usually by the time people start into early adulthood. But we also know that it's a really important predictor of more problematic psychiatric problems down the line. So people who persist in self-injury into adulthood tend to report poor outcomes. So it's really important to take it seriously when it occurs. I routinely come back to the words of Barry Walsh, don't freak out, try and treat it with a kind of dispassionate interest, which is really tough for parents. And given that parents often feel really conflict, very, very strong emotions when they discover that a young person in their life has hurt themselves, go and find out information. And there are numerous places that people could go. The IFSS website lists a whole bunch of them, which I think are a useful primer. Parents, by and large, aren't, don't feel particularly well equipped to deal with this, so go and talk to the people who are. If, it's a, if your child's at a school which has a pastoral care team, those people will have a good sense of what to do, and they may even already know. And alternatively, your general practitioner has a potential point of referral to other services in the event that it's judged that it's important for a young person to get some help. 
That is great. And I, and I know you mentioned Dr. Barry Walsh a number of times, and he contributed an excellent episode, episode 12, on atypical severe self-injury. So the more uncommon types of self-injury that we might come across, and I think there's cultural mm-hmm. relevance there. Based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to professionals, whether other researchers and or clinicians? Speaking to researchers, I think we need to be more flexible in the way that we define some of the things that we're interested in. And I think a lot of researchers already do this. I think we should be careful only asking questions about self-injury that neatly fits the definition of NSSI, where ideally we should also be asking about other forms of self-injury that for individuals may have the same meaning. I think that one of the challenges that we find here in Aotearoa is around how we do research with Indigenous people. So much of my research has involved spamming people with depersonalised surveys, and I've trained my undergraduates really well to fill those in. But for Māori, it's important to have a feel a relationship, an authentic relationship, before you disclose things that are important to you. And I wonder if this actually factors into our finding. We, do, we tend not to find that um, rangatahi Māori, young Māori people, report more self-injury. We don't tend to find that than anyone else. But we also haven't established that relationship with them that might give them the confidence to actually tell us something so potentially sensitive. So I think that the way that we do research is also really, really important. And the research which has been done with Indigenous people that speaks to perhaps, for example, the fact that our definitions of NSSI not, may not make it onto the battlefield is typically research which involves qualitative and involves building that relationship before you actually start talking about the thing you're interested in. For clinicians, I think that the DSM, for all of its faults, has a number of really important resources. So this idea of cultural concepts of distress, there's a section in the DSM that talks about some of these things, nervios in South America, in Zimbabwe, for example. And while these may look a lot like some of the things that we think of as, say, anxiety or depression, they're importantly different. And the DSM recommends that where it may be relevant, they have a sort of general outline for a culturally informed assessment that could be useful to try and get some insight into the the cultural context that a person comes with. And personally, I find this idea of cultural scripts to be a really potent and powerful one, and not just in the context of NSSI, actually. A whole bunch of different sort of behaviours, I think, could fall into that general idea. So um, I think that wherever we intersect with people who maybe come from a different cultural milieu to ourselves, I think education uh, is a really important next step. If I cast my mind, I can't remember if it was my first or second IEEE's conference in Vancouver at Simon Fraser. I talked a little bit about the research that my group does and alluded to the fact that we had a bit of data from Rangatai Māori, young Māori people. And Cynthia Nixon, you know, a really big name in NSSI, asked for more information. And the point that she went on to make was that in her context in Canada, there were so few Indigenous clinical psychologists that potentially have that insider status, that insider understanding the cultural dimensions of NSSI, that it put her in the position of being Caucasian woman trying to do her best, but not feeling particularly well equipped. So I think there's also a broader challenge to hear for us as trainers of people who go on to be clinical psychologists to try and make sure that we're building a workforce that actually is fit to work with the population of people who irrespective of cultural background, experience the kind of mental distress that we're talking about. Excellent. And based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to people with lived experience of self-injury? That's a great question. I'll come back to the point that I've previously talked about. Behavior tends to serve functions. That's not just NSSI in my research on voting behavior, on what you eat. The behaviors we engage in have a purpose. And I think that that's something that's important to remember. And potentially in the context of understanding one's own behavior, to what extent has our own cultural scripts or our cultural concepts of distress informed the way that we go about understanding what we do, but also the things that we do specifically? That's a tough one. I don't feel qualified to answer. I'll give it a go. 
Wow, this is really an excellent conversation. I'm, I'm going to be really excited when this episode releases. And I am biased, of course, to every episode. <laughs> but, but yeah, this is such a unique topic that we rarely discuss. And I think it would be mm. amazing to even have IISS in our conference this summer in June. For anyone actually listening, our conference is June 22nd, 23rd, 24th, virtually. It's a Wednesday through Friday mm. to be able to attend. It's just membership. Membership is a nominal fee, and you can find more at IISS.org, I-T-R-I-P-L-E-S. Org. But I think this would be very relevant. Dr. Wilson, if you submit something for to present on this, I, I know Dr. Walsh can attest to that as well as he's presented on similar. But yeah, this is super interesting, super important though too, super important. And thank you for sharing. That's a pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast. If you have found this podcast helpful, please subscribe and please help others find us by giving us a five-star rating, writing a positive review, and or telling your friends and colleagues. It is not considered therapy or meant to be a replacement for therapy, so if you or someone you love is in crisis and needs to talk to someone, you can reach out to the Crisis Text Line, a global not-for-profit organization providing free mental health texting service through confidential crisis intervention by texting HOME to 741741. For all things psychology, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at DocWesters. For all things self-injury, follow IISS on Facebook and Twitter at I-T-R-I-P-L-E-S. I'm Dr. Nicholas Westers. Thank you for listening to The Psychology of Self-Injury.